just like to welcome everybody that's joining us for our live stream. It's only one part of our service here at uh, City Temple and Chelsea Community Church. You can be part of the whole thing via Zoom by dropping us an email, or the best thing is to come and see us in person at 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. If we're going to look today in the Bible in four places, actually, Genesis, John, Ephesians, and Revelation. Before we read, let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for your word. I pray today that you'd open it up to us, that we can read it and also apply it to how we do life together as your people. We worship you and we honor you, and we thank you this day. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would rest on me to bring your word to your people boldly and faithfully through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. We start in Genesis chapter 2 with verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man, the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them all to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the field and to every beast of the field. But for the Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its plates with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, wow, this is at last, at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Then let's go to John, John chapter 3. Verses 25 to 30. They're talking to uh, John the Baptist. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. He's talking about Jesus there. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase but I must decrease. And then we go to Ephesians chapter 5. We begin with verse 25. Paul's writing here and he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And then finally, Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 to 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. May God bless to us these readings from his holy word. A few months ago, actually, the Lord told me, gave me the title for this series and when it was supposed to start. And I have to confess that, you know, there are some things you learn in childhood that you really should probably forget. And one of those things that I learned in childhood that I should forget, but just keeps coming into my mind as I was preparing for this series uh, called Here Comes the Bride, was, you know, the thing, uh, you've all heard the bridal march, right? Ba, 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 ba. Well, you know what? What we used to say as kids, here comes the bride, big, fat, and wide. Here comes the groom, skinny as a broom. So, I, I, you know, I've never been in a wedding where either of those applied, by the way, uh, just to say. But it's terrible uh, that, uh, you know, you get these things in your mind and they get stuck there. And, and even though you try to get rid of them, you can't quite. But uh, I think the Lord really has a message for us over the next few weeks. And the message, not only for us, I think it's a message for the world. And that is, here comes the bride. Here comes the bride. But I don't think most of the world, and especially most Christians in the world, really have an understanding of what that means and what that's going to mean. I think we're starting to get glimpses of it, but even we are waiting for some more things to unfold, but at least we need to begin to wrestle to understand because it's going to make all the difference for us in how we live as Christians, how we thrive as Christians, not only individually, but also corporately because we're living in one of those rare inflection points of history, particularly church history. The church history, the church has a tendency to go along uh, pretty much the same for a century or two, and then something happens that causes a fundamental shift 
in the history of Christianity. Uh, the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s was one of those fundamental shifts. And I think the shift, the times we're living in now, what we're going to see in terms of the life and the existence of the body of Christ globally is as significant as the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s. And we're living through it. And, and if you look back in history, most of the people living through it didn't realize what they were living through. But that's part of the reason why I think God is speaking to us and showing some things to us. Because right now, our concept of church, the concept of church globally, is changing. It's changing so much that we don't know what we think we know. What we think we know, we don't know. We don't understand. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you have a concept of church, and that concept is going to shift. It's going to shift. Even if you've not been a Christian for very long, but you've been in a nation like the United Kingdom that has a lot of church buildings around, you grow up with certain concepts of church that I think are going to shift rather dramatically. And part of this is because of this reality we've talked about for the last year plus about living in Babylon, not Israel. We live in a society now that is not favorable toward Christianity and in some parts is hostile toward Christianity, whereas before we were living in a society that basically took Christianity for granted. And that's all changing right now. We need the church, and we need this new understanding of church if we're going to survive and thrive even as individual Christians in Babylon. One of the things that most people don't realize, Babylon in the Old Testament, you might remember, there was an exile. The people of God in Israel, they didn't obey God. They started committing idolatry. And consequently, God said, okay, you're going to go in exile into Babylon. And they went in exile into Babylon, and it was in Babylon that they developed a new understanding of the scriptures as well as the idea of synagogues. And the purpose of the synagogues, they emerged in Babylon in order to help the Jews remain faithful even when they were in their time of exile. And that's happening right now in the church of Jesus Christ. We need that to survive and thrive. And God, we're entering a time where God more and more is going to be using churches to advance his kingdom. And so if we're out of that, we're going to miss what God... A short time ago, I was meeting with a young couple great couple. They love the Lord. I really, really like them a lot. They're not part of City Temple or anything. And they were talking about an organization that they were part of, and they were talking about uh, mission mobilization and how their organization was about getting individuals mobilized in mission. And that's been great, especially it's been great when you kind of live in a time of Israel. But now that we're living in a time of Babylon, We've got to mo motivate churches for mission, not just individuals.
for a mission, and that's what he's going to be doing. And part of we need to know church as so that we can know and participate in all that God is doing. We need to know and affirm the church as the bride of Christ, thus here comes the bride, if we're going to know and participate in what God is going to be doing. Now next week, I'm going to give a, 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 a much fuller definition of church and the biblical word for church. But, you know, today I'll just start out with a very simple thing and just say, uh, for our purposes today, the church is the community of Christians who gather in a particular place at a particular time. So we are the church, and there's other churches around, uh, and we are together here, the bride of Christ. We're not the entirety of the bride of Christ, but we're a vital part of the bride of Christ. When we use that word church, we can also be referring to the totality of all Christians in all places and all times. But when we say it that way, we're using a capital C, the capital C church. In the ancient creeds of the faith, they would often be called the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Catholic meaning universal uh, and apostolic means joining in the mission of God. And to understand this, we, we need to know that church is not... The religious practices, our buildings, our programs, our worship services. That's not who we are. And for many, many years, that's been the thing in people's minds. I want to go to church. What do you mean? I'm going to go to the building that has a little cross on the top, you know, and I'm going to church. And it's a church. And it's okay to call this building church because it's a church building. But the building is not the church. You know, when we're not here, it's just the building. It's not the church. You kind of, you guys know this. You get all these things. But at the same time, okay, church is not building. It's not programs. It's not all that. But churches need these things. You know, there's a problem. Some people say, well, you know, I don't like the church because it's all about buildings and programs and, and stuff like that. And they see that as the church. But other people say, well, real churches, they don't need buildings. They don't need programs. They don't need that kind of stuff. And you know what? That's wrong too. I mean, I'm a real person, but I need clothes. And you're thankful that I have clothes. Clothes are what enable me to interact with you. If I didn't have clothes on right now, most of you would leave. And thankfully, I, I, you know, you would, right? That's true. Well, the buildings, the programs, the things like, they're like the clothes. Karen and I, we have a, a lovely marriage. We've been married for many, many years, more than three decades now, and uh, very happy, and we've lived in various buildings. Now, our marriage is not defined by the building that we live in, but we've learned that it's better to have a building than a tent because we've tried both, okay? So does that make sense? So we have to be careful here when we're talking about the church to know the church is not the building, but at the same time, we're not anti-buildings. We want a building. We need a building. That's why we're building a new city temple building because we need these kinds of things. So 
Uh, but the thing is, when we lived in Israel, these things seemed optional. You know, when you're in a society that favors Christianity, you can go to church, you can not go to church, uh, you can have structure, you cannot have structure, because the whole society kind of supports you. Now in Babylon, that's not the case, and things are changing. If we're going to do life together and be the people of God together, we need certain things to facilitate that. And in this season, God is moving people away from what I call a cavalier, you know, a, a, a lackadaisical, an easygoing attitude about the church. You know, for many years, we thought, well, church is a matter of choice. You know, you choose the church you want to go to, and you choose to leave whenever you want to, and that's okay, you know, because it's all about, you know, the church uh, that you choose. Or the idea is that the church should meet my needs. Now, that sounded great in the 1980s when we are trying to get more people to come into the church, but, you know, that's not really biblical either. You know, or the, well, I don't have to be involved in a church in order to be a Christian. Again, that's a very unbiblical concept. Or the idea, you know, following Jesus is an individual and private matter. So I can do that on my own without gathering together with a group of Christians. Those are all very cavalier attitudes about the church that God will not allow to stand in this new season. And they will become very dangerous for us. And when we're looking at church and we understand, to understand this new season, we need to understand that there have been three dominant paradigms of church in church history. And all three are biblical. We, the bride, the body, and a building. Bride, body, building like that because they all start with B, so you should remember them quite easily. And uh, a lot of times people think, you know, the bride, that's a very new concept of church. It's talking about the end, but it's not. The very first paradigm of church was bride. And so what you see in the flow of church history is it starts with bride, moves to body, moves to building, goes back to body, and now is coming back to bride. And I believe that's why Jesus is coming again. And so we see it at the beginning as bride. What does John say? John the Baptist, he says, hey, I'm just a friend of the bridegroom. He's saying that Jesus is the bridegroom and his people will be the bride. Jesus' first miracle in the Gospel of John was at the wedding of Cana. So initially, even Jesus himself, when he was criticized about not fasting, he said, well, they can't fast while you're with the bridegroom. But when the bridegroom's gone, then they will fast. This concept of bride was really the dominant concept up until the book of Acts. Then in Acts, another concept starts to emerge, and that is the church as the body of Christ. Paul talks about that in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. And the idea of church as the body of Christ went from kind of the book of Acts all the way up until around the conversion of Constantine. And when I'm talking about this, all these are overlapping too. So it's not like there was a moment in history 
where we stopped talking about the bride and started talking about the body and stopped talking about the body and started talking about the building. Understand, there's always been a fluidity because it's always biblical. But the church, as the body of Christ, was dominant all the way up until the conversion of Constantine. And then after the conversion of Constantine, when Christianity became the accepted religion of the Roman Empire, on and off for the next several hundred years, then Christians thought, hey, we can now build buildings in which we can be church in. And so over that time, we began to think more and more of the church as a building And it was really the people of God coming together, being built together with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. That's 1 Peter chapter 2. It was that kind of concept, but over time, as the passion of the church waxed and waned, as uh, the leadership of the church became more or less corrupt, as the people of the church became uh, more or less committed uh, throughout history, over time, the idea of church as building became solidified in people's minds. And that idea of church as building really was dominant all the way up until the Protestant Reformation. And then the Protestant Reformation, of course, that's more than a thousand years now, about 1,200 years. Now the building is the dominant metaphor. And then at the Protestant Reformation, they started challenging that They started challenging the structures of the church and how the structures themselves had become corrupt. Notice the interesting dynamics of language here. They started challenging that. And then with people like Martin Luther, they began to say, no, we need to go after. It's not about priests. You know, one priest speaking a language you don't understand representing you to God. It's that we are all priests. It's the priesthood of all believers. And over time, this idea that we're all involved in ministry was very important. Even when the founding of City Temple in 1640, we know that the first place that City Temple met in the city of London had two pulpits. And it had two pulpits because it gave the freedom for people within the congregation to come up and do what they call prophesying. And prophesying there was not ecstatic prophecy like we sometimes understand it today. It was the dynamic application of God's word. But the idea was everybody in the body needed to be theologically trained. Everybody needed to be educated. Everybody needed to share in the ministry of the body of Christ, of the church. And that idea of the body really began to take hold again, partly with uh, uh, the Pentecostal, Uh, revivals of the early 1900s, but actually it was in the the charismatic movement and beyond that, that back in the 60s and 70s, many church leaders, even non-charismatic, non-Pentecostals, started talking again about the body of Christ. And the idea was the church was the body of Christ. And that was a, a, became a very dominant metaphor. And over that time, more and more people said, well, we've got to de-emphasize buildings and emphasize the church as the body of Christ. And then back in the 1990s, another shift started to occur. And we're still in the midst of that shift. And that's the shift from the church as the body of Christ to the church as the bride of Christ. And each one of those metaphors is important. We need to study them. You can study and look at them 
Each one is important. Uh, but I believe this bride of Christ uh, paradigm that's emerging will be the dominant paradigm from now until the coming of Jesus. I don't know. It could be 100 years, 200 years. I don't know. I don't think it's going to be that long. But it's coming. He's coming. And until he comes again, the bridal paradigm will be the dominant paradigm, even though all paradigms will continue to be present. They'll continue to be important. But the bride of Christ will become dominant, and it will continue to develop in our understanding, in our life together, until the return of Jesus. And so we need to see this and know this if we're going to be involved in what God is doing. Now, to understand the bridal paradigm, the clearest example we have is marriage between a man and a woman. That was Paul's point in that passage in Ephesians. We often read that and think, well, it's primarily about husbands and wives in the physical sense, But Paul is saying, no, actually, there is a spiritual reality that is revealed in the physicality, in the practical earthly reality of the relationship between a man and a woman as husband and wife. Now, understand when I say this, this is not privileging married people over people who are not married. Okay? It's not saying that, well, you know, if, if you're not married, then you're not really part of the bride. No, no, don't hear anything like that, please, because that's not what we're saying here. Uh, so what we're saying is that God has given us a visible expression of a spiritual reality that, will, that really encompasses our destiny as believers in Jesus Christ. Marriage is a lesser reality that points to the much greater reality of the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church, his bride. By the way, this is a big reason why we as Christians cannot support uh, marriage other than the marriage of a man and a woman. It's a big reason. We're not against anybody. You know, we don't hate anybody. But this is an important thing, and there's a distortion that happens when you expand the concept of marriage beyond what God has given us in the Bible. And in this relationship between Christ and and the church, in the example, Paul says, first of all, husbands, you must love your wife as a visible demonstration of how Christ loves the church. You as a man, if you're married, you have a solemn responsibility in your relationship with your spouse to love her in the same way that Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. He not only died on the cross, because that's what we normally think of, but he also laid aside all the power and privilege and prestige he had in the heavenly places and became born as a human being, became one of us. So husbands, they show their love by giving themselves up for their wives. Husbands live for the benefit of their wives. Our job as husbands is to bring benefit, the, benefit, the best things 
to our wives. Now, that doesn't mean we do everything they tell us to do. You understand? But it means that we have an orientation to look after their well-being. That supersedes other orientations. That's how Jesus loved us. And as husbands, we have a responsibility to nourish and cherish our wives. And wives, hopefully, you'll make it easy for us to do that. But you know, even when they don't, we still have this responsibility. That's the first part of the marriage dynamic that shows the love for Christ in the church. But then the second thing we see in the passage is that the loyal allegiance to one another, man and wife, husband and wife, excuse me, in the context of the marriage relationship, that loyal allegiance supersedes every other allegiance, even to biological family. In marriage, your allegiance is to one another, and that allegiance together is over every other allegiance. Just like the allegiance to church of the church to our Savior must supersede every other allegiance we have. And then Paul says, when the husband and wife, they come together, they, the two become one flesh. In other words, when you're married, you become a different reality. Before you're married, you're two. When you're married, you're one. There's a union there. Even though visibly you still seem to be two, spiritually, there's a unity. There's a oneness. And that's the same thing. When we become Christians, together we have a oneness with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There's a oneness, a spiritual oneness, that even though we look like individuals, there's something that connects us together that is a greater reality than what we see. And that's the reality of marriage. And this is a really cool thing. The wife then is designed for the husband as a helper suitable for him. Now, I love this because it almost always causes somebody offense to say that because they don't understand. Those, too many times I've heard guys, I've heard leaders, you know, kind of say, yeah, well, the women, they're, they're just helpers, you know. They're just a helper and the man. Okay, so I want to give you a, a, a scripture text to help you with this. First Samuel 7, 12. It's Samuel here. Look what he says. He says, then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. The same word for helper in Genesis 2 is the word for in Ebenezer in Samuel. The same word. So the word helper suitable is not a denigration. It's not saying that the men are better than the women and the women just follow the men. It's saying that together there's a dynamic where they will achieve something, something will happen that cannot happen any other way. And God knew that it wasn't good for the man to be alone, so he created this dynamic duo, if you will, husband and wife, in order to advance his kingdom. 
For us as the bride of Christ, as the church, understand what this means. It means that in the church, God has created all of us together to be a helper suitable for Jesus. We are united with Jesus. We are linked with Jesus as a helper suitable for him because it's not good for Jesus to be alone. And he's not because there's a bride. It's extraordinary when you stop, and we're just touching the surface here. If you ponder this even more, I believe the Lord will show you a lot of things. But it's a powerful, powerful statement that we're making here. So we need to have revealed to us the bridal paradigm of church. What does it mean when we're talking about the bridal paradigm? What are we talking about? And a paradigm, a paradigm is just a framework for seeing something. It's a framework for understanding something. It's kind of like a metaphor, although it's a little bit more than a metaphor, but you could use metaphor there as well, uh, the bride metaphor of the church uh, to understand it. And there are a lot of people that I've heard the last 25 years or so, uh, it's, it's when it's really grown up, uh, a lot of people talking about the church is the bride of Christ and the bridal paradigm. Uh, I've talked about, about it a lot myself. I'm becoming more and more convinced that the understanding is really, really incomplete. Because most of the time, when I've heard people talk about the bridal paradigm of the church, they're talking about intimacy. You know, so you talk about the bridal paradigm and they start to pull out the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a rather adult-rated uh, book of the Bible, you know, and they use that. And that typically, historically, has been used to understand some dynamics between Christ and the church and that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, intimacy is involved, but the bridal paradigm is much more than intimacy. And it's important for us to know that, especially for us as men, because frankly, if I'm just talking about intimacy, it doesn't always make me comfortable. Now, I love worshiping Jesus. I love those times of intimacy with my Lord. Uh, but, you know, for a lot of times we think of intimacy and we guys, you know, are thinking about just people going, oh, Jesus, I love you so much. I just want to kiss you. Uh, you know, I went, and you know, okay, I, I understand those things in context. I'm certainly not making fun of it. So please don't hear me. But you guys, you know what I'm talking about, right? Well, that makes us profoundly uncomfortable. And so if the bridal paradigm is just about intimacy in that sense, it's going to be a, a, a stretch for a lot of us guys, and even for some women, to embrace it. But intimacy in the bridal paradigm, that, that's almost a distortion. It's almost a distortion. Because in the bridal paradigm, intimacy involves getting Jesus' heart and Jesus' purpose, not only experiencing Jesus' love. It's great to experience the love of Jesus Christ. But when you want to get his heart, and his purpose, and that's what unites us, that's what keeps us moving together 
in the bridal paradigm. It's a bit like, you know, a, a marriage relationship. You don't have sex 24 hours a day. You can't. It's physically impossible and practically impossible, and nobody would really want to do it, even though some might think they would. No, it doesn't happen that way. So there's a different dynamic to intimacy. The intimacy I have with my wife is that she knows my heart. She knows my purposes. She knows what motivates me and drives me. And that kind of connection together helps us to move in sync with one another. And that's the idea in this bridal paradigm. The other dynamic we have to understand is that the bridal paradigm is a corporate dynamic. Individualistic Christianity is dying. It is going, and God's not going to do it anymore. And individualistic Christianity could only survive when you have a culture like in Israel. It certainly does not survive in a culture like Babylon. It's a corporate dynamic. No longer being a Christian is it about my ministry or my role or my decision for Jesus or how I want to volunteer. It's not defined by us individually. It's defined by us corporately in relationship with Jesus, our groom. It involves a unity, a oneness with Jesus and subsequently, a oneness with one another. We are one in Christ Jesus right now because we're in Christ Jesus. If you're in Jesus, you're one with Jesus, and you're one with Jesus' people. And because of this, we will receive a corporate purity and holiness from Jesus. So much of religion in the past has been about setting rules for your personal holiness. That's changing. Now, personal holiness is important. But I've discovered as a minister that it's much easier to be holy when I'm together with a bunch of other holy people than it is to be holy on my own. I learned this. I, I learned this actually playing golf about 30 years ago. Uh, I discovered that if I was playing golf with three Christian brothers, the foursome, that I would very rarely use a swear word. But if I was playing golf by myself, I would be very embarrassed. It's being together, connected to a holy Jesus, that helps us individually become holy. This bridal paradigm will see us as the church filled with the Spirit become a helper suitable for Jesus. And what God is doing in creating and bringing back, if you will, this bridal paradigm, bringing it to the fore, is creating a ministry partnership between the church as the bride of Christ and Jesus as the bridegroom to advance the Father's kingdom and be about the Father's business. That's what the Lord is doing. Now, what difference will it make? How will that shape us? How will that define 
our reality as the church? Well, initially, the changes are going to seem rather subtle. Uh, the change has been going on. It will continue going on, but it's a bit like uh, the old uh, metaphor, the frog in the kettle. You know, the, if you turn up the heat gradually, the, the frog doesn't jump out, but if you turn it up suddenly, it jumps out. So God's been turning up the heat gradually because, you know, I think that there'd be a lot of Christians, if they really knew what was coming, they might want to jump out before it got there. Because it's going to be good, but it's going to be intense. It's going to involve a corporate focus on Jesus as the bride focuses on her groom. A lot of churches, we get caught up in a lot of things, you know. We talk, and a lot of good things. Uh, talking about the, uh, setting up this cafe, outreach cafe that we're doing. That's a good thing. Small group ministry, that's a good thing. Sharing our faith in the workplace, that's a good thing. You know, all of these things are good. Uh, feeding the poor, helping people find housing. All these are, and more, are good things for us to do and are worthy causes. But these things in the bridal paradigm must flow from that relationship with Jesus and what Jesus tells us to do more so than it flows from our own good ideas and our feeling guilty about what should be done. And so we need that corporate focus on Jesus. Jesus is center. Uh, he's the cross. It's the resurrection. It's the second coming. The bridal paradigm, too, is going to cause a renewed emphasis on prayer. We see that already in our own church right here. I mean, we have four different gatherings for prayer. And they're key. And people keep talking about expanding those. There's a hunger to pray, a hunger to be together in that. But this corporate prayer, the difference, the change is going to be that our prayers are not going to be, oh, bless me, bless me, bless me, and heal grandma. Our prayers are going to be, Lord, stop this war. Lord, protect these people. Lord, guard your people serving in this community. God's going to be using our prayers and inspiring our prayers for places that might be on the other side of the world, but he'll do so in a way that he answers those prayers, and we'll start seeing more and more those answers coming along. With, true intimacy with Jesus always leads to mission and kingdom expansion. It will always lead to that. We'll see a worship that reorients us away from individualism and more and more toward who we are together in Christ. I can't tell you the number of times over the years I've heard people say, oh, I'm not going to come to church. I'm not getting much out of it. Well, that's a little bit like being an adult. You walk into one of these all-you-can-eat buffets and you, you pay your money and then you leave because you didn't get any food. Well, why didn't you get any food? Because you didn't go up to the buffet. You know, if you're an adult, it's your responsibility to feed yourself. And if you're going hungry, then don't look at the other people that aren't spoon-feeding you. Look at yourself. Because it's, a, it's, it's an issue there. It's an issue there. 
So this worship will reorient us away from our individualism, individualism and more and more toward who we are together in Christ and what Christ is doing in us together at his, as his bride. And our gatherings as the bride of Christ, the gatherings are going to involve building relationship with one another, not just doing stuff or learning stuff. Everything we do is about building relationship, building life together. But get this, life together is generally boring. You know, most of the time, Karen and I, we like boring because we've lived through not boring times of our lives. Like when our boiler broke down and we didn't have hot water for a week in the wintertime. That was, that was exciting. I'd rather be bored. You know, like when our dishwasher broke down and we had to rely on people living with us to do the dishes. That was exciting for them. They'd probably rather be bored. You get that, right? So many times you say, well, you know, it's just boring. We do the same thing every, every, well, just think about it. If you're married, which side of the bed do you sleep on? I guarantee you I've never met a couple in 35 years that changed the side of the bed they sleep on routinely night after night. Oh, honey, tonight you sleep on the left side. I'm going to sleep on the right side. It doesn't happen. It's about routine. It's about being together. It's about letting things get boring, but we do life together because it builds us together so that we will have this partnership with Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit and we'll have a partnership for whom he wants to reach and how he wants us to serve. And this is the bridal paradigm and it's coming. And I think the Lord has been working in us on this. I think we are in some respects where the church is going, although we're not there yet, but we're on the road. And we're going to keep going step by step, bit by bit, because here comes the bride. And this bride of Christ that she's manifested in individual churches and in individual places all around the world, this one bride, this bride of Christ, she is a helper that's fit for Jesus. And Jesus is now teaming up with his bride, teaming up with his bride so that his kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as in heaven until he comes again. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you. We worship you. We adore you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for who you are making us to be in your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to step into that reality. Bit by bit, step by step, day by day. Help us as a church become a helper fit for you, Jesus, here in Chelsea and across London and even across the world. We love you. We worship you. We honor you and we adore you. And we thank you. Thank you for the great love that you have for us. Oh Lord, as we come to you, as we come to this table, Jesus, our bridegroom, meet us here at this table. Join us in the celebration of this feast. 
by your spirit, bless this bread and this cup, that they would be for us truly the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, broken and shed on the cross. Wherever we're gathered, use these things to remind us of the union that we have with you as a bride with a groom. And help us to, through these, to anticipate that day when you come again to consummate this marriage at the great marriage feast of the Lamb. We love you, we worship you, and we adore you. We pray all this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.